Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to RBG Beyond Notorious. This is the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the CNN film RBG. People ask me, don't you feel uncomfortable being with a name like the Notorious B.I.G.? Why should I feel uncomfortable? We have a lot in common. We're going to take you on a decade-by-decade journey through the life of Supreme Court Justice and pop icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Stories you've never heard before from the people who know her the best. On the Law Review, Ruth was treated with reverence because we knew how good she was. Her advice to me has been is very much the same advice that her mother gave to her, which is be fiercely independent, but also, quote, be a lady. The key to the experience of being a, a Ginsburg clerk was just that you tried to work as hard as she did and tried to live up to her very high ambitions for the quality of the work that got done. I'm Poppy Harlow, and I'm joined throughout this journey by CNN's chief legal analyst, Jeffrey Tubin. Thanks for being here. Hi, Poppy. Hi. I always see you on the tube on the I TV, know. and now but, you're but here. You, it's like just my voice. In the fancy podcast studio. I'm psyched about this. And let's just begin with how it is nearly impossible to overstate the uh, importance and how unusual it is that an 85-year-old Supreme Court justice has truly become a pop icon. Well, you know, I've spent much of my career covering the Supreme Court. And much, and one of the things I've always noted with some sadness is that, like, people don't know who the justices are. They are sort of aware <laughs> of the Supreme Court as this important thing. Right. But, you know, the, the justices themselves are, are really obscure. But in the last few years, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has emerged as an icon, not th- that well transcends uh, the, 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 the the justice the the, the justice Ginsburg um, as this uh, heroine of the feminist movement of the. Uh, civil rights revolution and uh, of the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking as we move along why that is. Yeah. Uh, but it is an extraordinary phenomenon. And the fact that she is 85 years old right. makes it makes it even more extraordinary, but also contributes to why why she's so she's so it, famous. And you yes. had the opportunity to interview her. I did. Um, at a sort of key moment in your own life as well. <laughs> As in a no-sleep moment five days after having my second child. Yes, that's true. I mean, this is, you know, I, I never thought I would have the opportunity because few do. I mean, you you have, but mm-hmm. few get to interview sitting Supreme Court justices. And my alma mater, Columbia University, came to me and said, we have a women's conference and RBG is going to be a guest. Would you do the interview? So here I am three months pregnant. And the interview was actually slated on my due date. 
And I thought, no way, my husband will kill me. I cannot say yes to this when I'm supposed to be in labor. So my due date gets moved up a week. I ask him what he thinks, and he's like, you can't miss this interview. But initially, I said no to Columbia. I was so worried about, you know, being in labor at the same time. And they said, are you really saying no to a sitting Supreme Court justice? You should do this interview. Well, and, and we were talking about this in the in the lead up. And right. it was, <laughs> you really didn't know. Uh, I really whether, didn't know if I'd be able, to, be able do to do it. But so, I think, but yeah. I, but, you know, I, you know, it's it's a cute story, sure. But it is also a revealing story about wow. women in the workplace. It is, and who better to be interviewing under those I, circumstances? I appreciate that, and hats off to you who helped me a lot. And Joan Piscubic will be on the podcast for preparing and Ariane Vogue for the interview. But I prepared about a month in advance, thinking if this baby comes early, I better be ready for this interview. But the truth is, it's an interview that I knew I would tell my daughter and my son, who I was giving birth to, about years later because of all. Uh, the huge role that she played in laying the foundations of equality for women like me. I mean, because of what she has written, what she has done has opened the door to so much for so many, uh, so many women and so many working mothers. Um, So that was a fascinating interview. You'll hear some of it uh, in a moment. But just talking about her, she's a Brooklyn, a Brooklyn girl, Jeff. Uh, She is. And, um, you know, she has had she is one of the very few Supreme Court justices who would have a major place in American legal history Mm -hmm. If she had never served on the Supreme Court, I mean, sure, her, you know, she is and the the Thurgood Marshall of the of of women's rights. Although she uh, doesn't like being called that. She doesn't like being called that out of modesty because yep. she, you know, she recognizes correctly that Thurgood Marshall literally his life was on the line at every moment mm-hmm. when she, when he was, um, you know, blazing the trail for, for civil rights. Civil rights. Uh, and and RBG is very careful to say she was never in physical danger. But in terms of changing the law, mm-hmm. um, her impact was comparable to that. Her impact on, on women's rights. And so, you know, it's you know, one of the amazing things about about Ginsburg is that she um, was almost 60 years old by the time she was appointed to the D.C. Circuit. Right. So she had had a long, serious career. Before she became any kind of judge. Mm-hmm. And she was on the D.C. Circuit for a, a number of years before Bill Clinton appointed her to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. uh, in 1993. And that, of course, set her on a very new, sure. different trajectory. So much about her life is is cinematic. And it's no wonder that they are making movies about her now, not just our documentary, but but like actual uh, feature, films. feature films. This is how the interview that I did with Ruth Bader Ginsburg opened. Listen. In your first argument as an attorney before the court, you quoted the feminist, the attorney, the abolitionist, Sarah Grimke, who said in 1837, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is, is that, that they, they take-, take their feet off our necks. <laughs> it had it had a certain shock quality, which is what I attended. I wanted to get the attention. Are their feet off our necks today? <laughs> Much more so than I ever dreamed would be possible in my growing up years. So, Jeffrey, talk about her importance on the court today. Well, I mean, this is part of the story that I think it's important to be honest about. Um, Her importance on the court 
is less than it might be because she's often in the minority. She is a progressive. She's a Democrat. She's a liberal. And there is a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. And, and you know, as we are speaking here, it looks like that conservative majority is going to be added to. Yeah, with Kavanaugh. Uh, because a- a- Anthony Kennedy uh, stepped down at the end of this term and, um, you know, Kennedy was a was a um, quirky figure in many respects, but certainly on issues that mattered a great deal, mm-hmm. that matter a great deal to Ruth Ginsburg, um, he was on her side, and most notably abortion rights. And um, you know, many, not all, but many of of RBG's opinions, most important opinions, have been dissents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- that's not all. That's that hasn't been true for all of them. I mean, she, but it is an important. You know, that like Thurgood Marshall before her, um, she has been um, a a person who has not been uh, with the dominant faction on the Supreme Court. So in this podcast, we are taking our listeners on this decade by decade journey through her life, through the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're going to talk to the people who knew her and know her best. Hopefully you're going to get a little bit of a better understanding of how maybe she changed your life. She did things that definitely changed your life. So let's start with the present and let's look at RBG in the era of Trump. Well, um, you know, she (laughs) she she is not a person of the Trump era. She is a person of a a very different era, politically, socially, uh, temperamentally. Right. um, And um, in, in Perhaps ways that she might regret, and we'll be talking about this a little a later. Uh, she made that clear. She made it clear that she she was not, um, you know, she was not fond of President Trump. But you know, President Trump is not the whole country either. It's important to remember that. Right. And one reason I think um, RBG is, is so popular now is that she has this enormously important platform. Yeah. Um, where she is fully capable and fully engaged and fully um, outraged at a lot of what's going on in the country and is not pulling any punches. And that view is held by a lot of people in this country as well. Just doesn't happen to be held by the president of the United States. There you go. So up first with us, we're going to talk to someone who knows RBG better than almost anyone. She calls her Bubby. We will call her Clara Spera, and she is RBG's granddaughter, currently a clerk for the U.S. District Court in New York. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course, you're a star in this CNN film and a big part of your grandmother's life. And, of course, you've in many ways followed in her footsteps. Um, You went to Harvard Law, like she did, and when she was there, she was one of nine women in in her class at Harvard Law. And she was stunningly, even for that time, asked to defend and explain why she should hold a seat that a man would have. Remember her telling you about that? Yeah, I mean, that story is, I think, well-known and very different to my experience. Uh, On my first day at Harvard Law, the then dean of the law school, Martha Minow, a woman, Mm -hmm. uh, introduced the class and celebrated the fact that my class, the graduating class of 2017, was the first class at Harvard Law School that had full gender parity, 50% men, 50% women. Uh, And it was a cause for celebration, but I think also somewhat of a cause for shock that It was only in the class of 2017 that women matched the number of men. Yeah. Did you know when you were before you got to law school 
how important your mo- your grandmother was? I mean, you know, you, you, just so to fill people in, your 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 mother is a distinguished professor at Columbia Law School. Your father's a successful lawyer. So, you, I mean, you grew up in this world. But did did it? What did you learn about your your grandmother in law school at, at something of a distance? I always knew that she was very important, but I think I didn't understand the intricacies of the kind of work that she did both on the court and when she was practicing law. And in law school, I really garnered a real appreciation for what it was that she did in terms of the actual changes in the law that she has moved along throughout her career. Um it's also interesting because when I was was right about when I started law school, it was my time in law school dovetailed perfectly with the explosion of her public profile. Yeah. And so had I gone to law school five years earlier, I might not have been walking down the hallway greeted with pe- by people wearing T-shirts with her face on it or quotes of hers on know? tote bags. Or did your did your different last names help you sort of conceal, you know? Sure. I, I definitely attempted to stay under the radar. It was not a relationship that I advertised widely. Uh, the fact that we don't share a last name helps in that regard. Um, certainly in the first year curriculum, we read a lot of her opinions, yeah. uh, especially in our civil procedure class. So that was one thing I learned about her is that she's kind of a procedure nut. You know, and- I, can I just interrupt? I mean, this is one of the great sort of weird things about Ruth Ginsburg is that, you know, everybody knows her as, you know, this feminist pioneer. But she's really into civil procedure. And in fact, one of the it, it, tr- truly bizarre chapters in, in, in her life is that she spent a year studying Swedish civil procedure. Mm-hmm. They over there. In, in Sweden. Yeah. She learned Swedish. I, I mean, of course, typical, as one does. Yeah, as one does. <laughs> but I mean, you know, this is not, shall we say, a sexy part of the law mm-hmm. in any sense of the word. But, you know, she's really good at it. And, she, and, and, and it's a way of her extending her influence independent of sort of the political world that, that, you know, is so involved in the women's rights movement. It is, but I also think that procedure complements the fight for equality. Because how, if, how so? If you look at some of the opinions that she's written or dissents, you just mentioned the Lily Ledbetter case, which I know you'll get to in another episode, mm. that was ultimately a procedural question mm. when someone could bring a claim for pay discrimination. Mm. And it was all about whether or not discrimination could be told, as in the events of discrimination added up one after the other, or if or each, each... time a lesser paycheck came through. Exactly. Uh, when when it, the told, T-O-L-L-E-D, not T-O-L-D, right? right. Yes. Told, right. It, exactly. it, 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 that case was about um, statutes of limitations and when you could bring a case. She taught you, Clara, how to win an argument and what not to do to win. That is true, but she gave me advice, which I am embarrassed to say I often ignored uh, until recently. But, you know, I think that you see both through her writing and through her very public friendships that she does not yell. She doesn't go overboard. And she really tries to be a consensus builder when that's possible. And so her advice to me has been is very much the same advice that her mother gave to her, which is be fiercely independent, but also, quote, be a lady. So don't let your anger get the better of you. Don't you can't win an argument by yelling. Uh, Now, I was a competitive debater in high school and college, and sometimes I ignored that advice. And more often than not, I lost when I wasn't taking that advice into account. But I think that that is really a product of how she was raised and how she approaches the 
court and the law. I think there are others who say that now especially is a time to fight. Now is a time to, you know, not build consensus, but really ignore or not bring those on board who aren't fully on board. And I think there are value. There is value to that argument. Well, what do you think and what what do I mean? And and also, what does your grandmother think? I mean, you know, yeah, she was a courtroom lawyer Mm -hmm. and, and that's that was her contribution. What about the women who were in the streets? What I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, did, did she feel that they were complementary, contradictory? I mean, what, what, what was her attitude towards the people who took other routes? Well, I, I can't say how she felt or what her uh-huh. attitude at the time was. I can only imagine that she thinks that more people fighting for rights and equality through different avenues is probably a good thing. But growth in social movements, unless reflected in the law and vice versa, can't achieve much. And the law often has to catch up with social movements, more so than social movements catching up with the law. Uh, One of her former clerks and a professor of mine, um, Professor, uh uh-oh, Professor Klarman of Harvard Law School, has written at great length about this. And he was inspired by his time working for my grandmother. Mm -hmm. The idea that we often have to wait for social movements to define yeah. the you know, social zeitgeist and then the law can respond. And if the law tries to move too quickly before social movements have caught up, often there is backlash. And you see that in the argument that my grandmother has often raised with respect to Roe v. Wade. I was just going to say that's what she said, which surprises many people because they know where she stands on re- reproductive um, rights. And we'll get to that in, in a future episode. But I did ask her in the interview. Uh, you were there in the audience. I, was. I, I asked her about the Me Too movement. Here's what mm-hmm. she told me. It's amazing to me that for the first time, women are really listened to because sexual harassment had often been dismissed as, well, she made it up or she's too thin-skinned. So I think it's a very healthy development. Can I just interject one thing? Did you notice that long pause in the, the middle of the answer? Classic. That is classic. That is classic. And and that I mean, try, I mean, try, try interviewing you, her and right. not, not jumping in. I think it that. unnerves anyone she encounters, whether it's an interviewer or even yeah. a family member at the dinner table. She does that. Yes, and she's thinking so deeply and much more deeply than the three of us combined, I'd imagine. And she's just not. And I think this speaks to what we were just talking about. She will often not speak unless she knows it is the right thing to say, the perfectly developed argument or the perfectly developed idea. And she, unlike me, doesn't waste words and just fills space. And she has gotten to a point, I think, in her career and in public appreciation of hers that she knows people will wait for her to finish that sentence or finish that thought. You know, when when I've been reporting about RBG. I, I have interviewed a lot of clerk, law clerks and whatnot, and several of them talk about the experience going in for a clerkship interview, which is, um, which is you know unnerving in the best of circumstances. And they come to these pauses, and they they said you know they almost universally said I just started babbling like an idiot because I couldn't <laughs> stop. And I remember in once when I was interviewing her, I was very proud of the fact that there was one of these pauses, and I let it 
sit there and I let it sit there. And finally, Justice Ginsburg said to me, you know, I finished my answer. Oh, you go did. ahead and answer, go ask <laughs> were, me something else. But I thought, you know, RBG, I outlasted you. Yeah, you were eternally patient. <laughs> no, I, I had heard, I don't know if it's sort of just an urban myth, but that her clerks and some of them have the like three Mississippi rule <laughs> that they count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi before they, they jump in. Um, you know, we talked a little bit also about, you know, an equal rights amendment, mm-hmm. which did not you know, get enough of the states on board to, to be ratified mm-hmm. and which we still don't have. So mm-hmm. we still technically uh, we talked about, not, you know, not having equal uh, protection for women under the Constitution in, in the form of an Equal Rights Amendment. Do you what do you think or has she talked to you about what she sees as full equality for women in America? What when when we will reach that day or what that day would look like? We haven't you know, had that precise conversation. But I think that throughout our conversations and just knowing her, there are a few indications of what she might think. And um, actually going back to your interview, Poppy, with her, when you asked her, are there feet off our necks? And she said, much more so than I could have ever imagined. But she didn't say they're off completely. No. So the first thing we know is that we're not there yet in part because of that answer, in part because we don't have an equal rights amendment. But I also think that her appreciation for the Me Too movement signals that she understands that there are generational shifts when it comes to seeking certain rights and equality. And what she may have been fighting for in the 70s, actual black and white discrimination written into laws on paper, while there may be less of that type of gender discri- gender-based discrimination now, There are perhaps similarly insidious types of discrimination, but that appear in different ways and that the fight is probably truly never over. Uh, And we see that not just in the case of gender equality, but also racial equality Mm -hmm. and the other types of discrimination that many people in this country face. Can I ask you both and, and Jeffrey to you first when the history books are written about Justice Ginsburg? What will they say? What is the one most important thing they will say? They'll start with her career as a lawyer. I mean, I, I think there's th- that, you know, the, you know it, it is so hard to imagine how discriminatory all laws were against women when RBG started practicing law. You know, women couldn't get credit cards in their own names. They couldn't, they couldn't um, you know, s- get real estate uh, on, on their own without, w- without their husbands. I mean, there, there was no such thing as marital rape. I mean, just the, the mm-hmm. laws were just unrecognizable from today. And it was because of her architecture of fighting these these yeah. laws that, that those laws on the books have changed. And, and I think, you know, her legacy as a justice will be principally as a dissenter. I think she will be seen as 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 a woman who the great dissenter who was not right. Who, but but who was not uh, in the majority, at least mm-hmm. in all of the great cases uh, of her tenure. And to your point, we're going to, in another episode, have Arthur Miller on, her, her friend, who says she knit a sweater. Her strategy through being a lawyer was sort of knitting a sweater and step by step by step getting to these. Clara, what will they write? Just a note on the Professor Miller um, <laughs> metaphor. While I appreciate it, I wish he had picked something a little less gendered. Oh, than there you go. Um, <laughs> how, how, how could I miss that? In, I, I see his point and I do agree with it. So what will the – did she even knit? I mean, no. come on. Um, <laughs> did uh, – what, what will the book say about your grandmother? 
the history books. You know, one would hope that depending when the book is written, maybe a few decades from now, it will be that her dissents were adopted as a majority opinions eventually and into law, like some of her past dissents. Um, so, you know, she never went on the court wanting to be the great dissenter. I don't think anybody does, <laughs> frankly. Uh, so, it, so it's hard to say. Um, but I think that that's right, that her career as a litigator will be what is highlighted, but that how she was able to bring a lot of those values into her tenure as a Supreme Court justice. And of course, I don't think any book would be fully complete without mention of her exceptional sense of style. <laughs> the dissent callers. Yes. Yes. Well, and not just the, not. I'm sorry, not just the dissent callers. She's like a very fashionable woman off the bench as well. I raid her closet every time I visit. There you go. Well, oh. you should. Uh, Clara, thank you. Thank you really so much. Been, been a delight and eye-opening. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Stick around. We have CNN's Supreme Court guru, Joan Piscupic, here with us to help us understand RBG's role in the Trump era. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. All right. With us now is Joan Piscupic, our Supreme Court guru at CNN. She truly knows everything about the high court, and she's here to talk to us about a lot. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So let's talk about the importance of RBG in what the court very well may look like next term if Justice Kavanaugh is confirmed. Her role, she will be starting a whole new era herself. She will only be more important as the leader of the liberal wing with very little chance to move anybody over to their side. Uh, Anthony Kennedy was as good as it got for the justices on the left. The man who will be in the middle now, John Roberts, mm -hmm. is nothing like that kind of a swing justice. If she ever manages to pull him over to the side of the four liberals, it will be a much different kind of ruling, much further to the right. Uh, she herself is going to have to figure out how to bring more unity to the four liberals. She once told me that she hated how messy the dissent was in Bush v. Gore mm. when they all wrote separately. And she has wanted to have the four 
on the left speak with one voice. That was very difficult, even in the era of Anthony Kennedy. She could count on Sonia Sotomayor to speak with her in the more liberal vein. But just as Breyer and Kagan have broken off a lot because they're much more moderate, she's going to have real tension in terms of trying to keep her people together to be the voice of liberalism on the high court, mm. but yet to try to win also. So they're going, there's going to be compromise. It's a, she will be walking a much uh, finer line where she will have to decide who she is. If, will she be the great dissenter who speaks only out there, or does mm-hmm. she try to work with what she's right. got, uh, a very different individual in John Roberts than Anthony Kennedy? Well, and to, to Jeffrey, do you remember when she said someone asked her at some forum who should eat more ca- the most kale? Uh, on the court right now, and she said Anthony Kennedy. Well, sure, and and, and um, you know that he he was the lifeline on abortion rights, uh, on some civil rights cases, on, on the death penalty, and uh, and he's gone now, and presumably Kavanaugh will replace him. And and you know the the Kavanaugh was chosen not to be Anthony Kennedy. He mm-hmm. was chosen to be much closer to uh, Neil Gorsuch and, and Clarence Thomas. But but Joan, I just wanted to ask you, in addition to keeping the liberals together. Like, what do you think it's going to be like to lose all the time for her? She will be wearing that dissenting collar all the time. (laughs) She is used to being... Say say what the dissenting collar is. Really, it's actually a physical collar. It is. It is. She always, because she is so stylish, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Jeff, because she has a great sense of style under that black robe. Oh, yeah. But what she puts over the black robe on occasion are very colorful, intricate collars. And on the days that she's going to read a dissent from the bench, she has this one that has, uh, it's black with silver crystals, silver crystal accents that she likes to wear. So we always know, like, what's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, I've kidded that she, uh, it's her way of taking off the gloves and putting on the collar. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been in a position to be demoralized over time and rise above it. And she will be very much challenged at this moment because, uh, you know, in the last, I would say, let's just take the last eight years, she was able to eke out many victories, especially on social policy Abortion rights, gay, gay rights. Right. I left out gay rights. Exactly, which is of the, and the most and dramatic area. Yeah, it is almost impossible to see her winning on social dilemmas with the court as it will be constituted. And I think you're right that she will have to fight this um, sense of being in the minority and losing. But if anyone can do it, it's someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg who's overcome so much. So, Joan, um, I remember vividly anchoring and you came on the show all of a sudden because you had done this stunning interview with RBG a few years ago. This is after she told the New York Times about then candidate Trump. I can't imagine what this country would be with Donald Trump as our president. I don't even want to contemplate that. So you walk into this interview and you basically you think she's going to walk it back, but she doubles down and she calls him a faker to you. What happened was not only had the New York Times elicited that kind of response from her, but also the Associated Press. Right. And I had a previously scheduled appointment to talk to her about John Roberts. For your book. Exactly. Yes. Can we just say that Joan has a biography of John Roberts coming out relatively soon and we should everybody should read it. So just and pre-order. Yeah. <laughs> so just to, to just I, I'm sure you're happy with that interruption, but please continue about your interview. 
contribute. <laughs> one author to another. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I go in there, and Poppy and Jeff, I'm thinking that uh, I can't not ask her about what she just said, but I actually expected her to walk it back. Yeah. And I and because she'd already been getting some public pushback about her line about, you know, I'm going to move to no- New Zealand if he's elected. So I say, <laughs> do you regret this, Justice Ginsburg? And she says, no, he is a faker. He's a faker. And why haven't the media pressed him to release his tax returns? And she starts almost as if she were outlining a brief, talking about all the things that were that was wrong with Donald Trump as candidate. And at one point, she said something that was even more derogatory. And she said, oh, that's off the record. So I knew that this was an on-the-record conversation. Yeah. It was just one point that she was saying that that was off. And she... She spoke so publicly and almost proudly with her remarks. And the word faker, I think, is what resonated, Poppy. So uh, after that, um, this is mid-July 2016, before the election, President Trump tweets, Justice Ginsburg of the U.S. Supreme Court has embarrassed us all by making very dumb political statements about me. Her mind is shot. Resign. Um, And then in this Katie Couric interview, she does admit, Joan, she probably shouldn't have said anything like that. What happened was she got such pushback, not just from someone like Donald Trump, who she wasn't going to listen to, but liberal friends, the editorial page of The New York Times, calling into question her judgment for saying something about an individual who could potentially come before the court. So what she says is, upon reflection, my recent remarks were ill-advised. And she she didn't apologize for saying what she said about Donald Trump as faker. It was more that she realized as a justice, she shouldn't have been making mm-hmm. injudicious remarks. I, I mean, look, look, let's let's be candid. I mean, it was outrageous what yeah. she said. She should right. not have said that stuff. I mean, you know. Why do you just, think she did it, Jeff? Not once, well, twice, you know, but three times. You know then. what? I, I think it was weird. I don't have a good explanation for it. I think, you know, one of the things, um, I don't know about this personally, but I am told that people, when they get older, they become more like themselves. And uh, I think, you know, she's an old fashioned liberal and she's, you know, I I think her um, internal sensors are down. um, And I think it happened with Justice Scalia, um, her her friend and political opposite, Mm -hmm. who became crankier and more political in his old age. And I think she's become crankier and uh, more political in her old age. And. I, I, you know, look, I, I wish she had said it to me rather than Joan because it was a great scoop for Joan. CNN but, quickly hired Joan. Yeah, after but, that but, but, you know, I, I just think it was ridiculous and outrageous. Well, can I add something about mm-hmm. my experience with her? Mm-hmm. She is an honest woman. She is very I thought this episode t- showed two things about her. First of all, she will say things. She was very honest about to me about what it was like to sit around the table as the only female justice at a point where Sandra Day O'Connor had left the court Mm -hmm. and Sonia Sotomayor was not yet on the court, and how she was even ignored sometimes with these men around the conference table, these eight justices. She had always been very honest about what it was to express her views. So I think that was part of it a bit. But the other thing, Jeff, that I think she did that many other people wouldn't have done, when she realized what she had done wrong, she admitted it. And that's the other thing that I think comes with experience, that you're right, mm-hmm. that maybe she shouldn't have said it. I, frankly, was very happy that she said it to <laughs> right. me. Yeah, but maybe she shouldn't have said it. But then she acknowledged that she was wrong. But the president- and, th- and that showed 
yeah. good judgment and sound. Uh, just uh, that I, I noticed the same thing too. That when she saw her traditional allies, even yeah, um, including for example, people like me. I mean, I wrote something about it. That that she said, you know what? Better to put up the white flag and fight fight another battle. She in, she in fact, you know, I mean, there was talk about would she have to recuse herself from certain cases that came before the court because of this, um, the travel ban, for example. She uh, concurred with Justice Sotomayor in the in the dissent on that one. So, I mean, she didn't. It didn't end up affecting her. You know, ability to sit on the bench and do this job, but there was, was talk about right. that well, too. And, and also, I mean, there there is a certain amount of pretense involved here because these justices, all of them, are politically sophisticated people, all with strong political views, political connections. You don't get appointed to the United States Supreme Court without a lot of contacts in the political world. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the justices don't have these views is sort of absurd. But at the same time, I think they all recognize that there is a purpose served by not broadcasting those views. And I think Ginsburg recognized the folly of her ways on that occasion. Finish the sentence for me, Joan. When the history books are written about RBG, the most important line will read? She mattered to women for many, many years. And in the last chapters of her time on the Supreme Court, she mattered to everyone in terms of individual rights. Fascinating. Joan Piscupic, thank you. Thank you. Everyone pre-ordered Joan's book. Another (laughs) plug there will be no doubt a fascinating read on Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts. And thank you to everyone, Joan and Clara. Uh, On our next episode, we're going to focus on the 2000s and the decade that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg really cemented her reputation and gained her her famous notorious nickname. She's just so such an unlikely pop cultural icon in a lot of ways. She is pretty old. She's 85. You can say it. She's She's 85. She's pretty old. Yes, that's true. Right. I mean, older women in our society are generally not celebrated, particularly not as cool, hip, um, you know, cultural figures. Keep listening. Her story continues next. And don't forget to watch the CNN film RBG this fall. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.